If you have a Bible, find John 19. We've read the passage just a few moments ago. We're going to reference it regularly this morning, so probably want to have a copy of the scriptures close by. There are notes in the bulletin. You can track along with the message and some of the things that we're going to talk about. Before we jump in, let me just say we've got a lot of uh, kiddos in here in recent weeks, and we want kiddos in here, and kiddos make noise, and so if you're prone to roll your eyes at children who make noise, you can go to church across the street, because we want the kiddos in here, and they're going to make noise, and it's all good. John 19, this is a continuation of what we talked about last week as we were in the middle and the end of John 18. This is Jesus being condemned to die. He's being accused of a number of different things, none of which he's really guilty of in the sense that he's guilty and deserving of death. And there's one thing that I want to note. We sort of talked around it last week, but it's pretty central to our passage this morning. In the first century, the Jewish people were subjected to Roman rule. They were oppressed peoples. And the Romans gave the Jews and other folks that they conquered, they gave them some measure of self-rule, but one of the things they did not grant to subjected peoples was something that they called the right of the sword, meaning the right to carry out executions. So there's some measure of self-rule. They let Herod call himself a king, sort of air quotes, Herod the king, but everyone knew he wasn't a king like Caesar was king. Uh, They would let Annas and his mafia family sort of control the temple precincts and all the things going on there, but everyone knew they had to buy that power from the Romans. It wasn't something that was really inherently theirs. We all know that there was times when the Jews carried out executions, even in the first century. You think about the story of Stephen in the book of Acts. He preached a sermon, and the the crowd was just so outraged, they stoned him immediately on the spot, and they killed him. But what we're saying is, for the most part, Jews as subjected people living in Judea and Galilee, they were not allowed to carry out executions, which is why... In verse 6, if you look at the way John tells this story, Pilate says to the Jews, you take him and you execute him. That was illegal. They couldn't do that. Uh, Pilate couldn't just grant them that authority to make that call on their own. Pilate knew it and they knew it. This wasn't a real offer as if Pilate is sort of negotiating and saying, well, I could just let you do it. This is Pilate mocking the Jewish people. He's mocking these Jewish leaders saying, look, we all know you don't have the authority to do what you want me to do, so if you want me to do it, you're going to have to play by my rules. This was not a power that the Jews were given by the Romans. One more thing I want to acknowledge, and it's when you read the Gospel of John and you compare it to the Gospel of Mark, there are some we'll call them questions of chronology that center on two specific things, the date of the Passover and the time of the crucifixion. There are some details that when you read in John and you read in Mark on a first reading don't seem to line up. 
Specifically, if you look at John 19, verse 14, John tells us it was the day of preparation of the Passover, meaning it was the day when they were preparing the Passover lambs to be sacrificed so they could celebrate the Passover meal that evening. And John says it was about the sixth hour. The rub comes in when you compare this to Mark, and I'm not trying to hide it. I've given you the verses. Some of you read your Bibles closely, and you text me or email me about these things. Some of you don't read as closely, and I'm giving you the verses. You can read them closely on your own. Mark seems to say that the Passover was the day before, that Jesus had sent the disciples into Jerusalem with instructions, go prepare the Passover, so that we can eat it together. It sounds like they don't exactly agree. And Mark says it was the third hour when Jesus was hung on the cross, but John says it was the sixth hour when Jesus was still before Pilate. Now look, Easter's coming up. History Channel, Discovery Channel, they're going to run all these Easter specials trying to get church people to watch. And some of you are going to watch. And about halfway through, they're going to bring on some expert. And the expert's going to say to you, well, you know, you got John and you got Mark, and they don't really agree. John says one thing, Mark says another thing, so you take one, leave the other, or that maybe they're both wrong. They're going to want you to question the truthfulness of the Scriptures. And I'm just telling you, you don't have to question it at all. The resolution of these two passages and the questions is really not all that difficult. John, it seems, when he talks about uh, this sixth hour, is likely using a Roman reckoning of time, which started at midnight, meaning it's about 6 a.m. Mark, when he talks about time, is probably using a Jewish reckoning of time, which started when the sun comes up, and he says it was three when they hung him on the cross. And if you make that one simple assumption, they just line up perfectly. You say, oh, there's no contradiction. Well, that, that's nothing to be bothered about. What about the Passover? It's entirely possible that Jesus and the disciples celebrated the Passover a day early. Did you know there's Old Testament precedent for celebrating the Passover not exactly on the day of Passover? So maybe Jesus, knowing what was coming, said to the guys, look, we're going to celebrate one night early. Add to that the fact that we have historical sources that tell us at the Passover in Jerusalem, so many pilgrims flooded the city to celebrate the Passover, they could not physically kill all of the lambs in the temple precincts that needed to be killed for the Passover celebration. There was too many. There weren't enough hours or minutes in the day to get it all done. And so a tradition developed that if you were a Jew from Galilee, you actually slaughtered your lamb and celebrated the Passover a night early so that those from Judea could celebrate on the day of the Passover. Maybe that's what's going on here. There's a number of ways to resolve these passages. And when you turn on that History Channel show in a few weeks and they say, look, they don't even agree about the basic details surrounding Jesus' death, you just flip the channel and watch a replay of a basketball game or watch a NASCAR race or something like that. You'll, you'll be better served if you don't watch that nonsense. My aim is not to resolve all the apparent discrepancies. I want to acknowledge those. I want to assure you, you have nothing to be concerned about as far as if the Bible is true or not. My aim this morning is to say to you, I want you to see the truth about who Jesus is. That's John's aim. I told you this is a continuation from last week. It's the same basic story, which means it's the same basic big idea that we talked about last week. John wants you to know that Jesus was the Messiah 
He was the Christ. That's exactly the big idea we used last week. It's the same story. It's the same point that John is driving home. He wants you to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. We talked about these two titles last week, Messiah and Christ. Messiah is an English word that comes from a Hebrew word, and it literally means anointed one. Christ is an English word that comes from a Greek word that's a translation of Messiah, and it means the exact same thing. He's the anointed one. Pick the Hebrew term, pick the Greek term, pick the English translation, anointed one. It really doesn't matter. John wants you to know that Jesus is the one that God had promised to send. That's what this title, Messiah or Christ, sort of developed into over the centuries. You find it just a handful of times in the Old Testament. But it becomes this catch-all title for who God would send to save his people. He's the, the one to crush the serpent. He's the offspring of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's the one who ushers in a new covenant. All of these Old Testament ideas just get lumped under this heading. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. Here's the the reality. John is not satisfied for you to know that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans. That's not all he's trying to tell you. He is telling you that. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans. But what John really wants you to understand is who Jesus was, who he is, and why his death matters for you, especially 2,000 years later. Why does it matter that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans? It matters for you and me because he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. There's several things in this passage in particular we're going to focus on. Here's the first. What does John want us to know about Jesus the Messiah? He wants us to know that Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the suffering servant. Over the last few weeks, I've been reading a book. I've read about this book and a number of other books, and I finally decided I needed to get it. It's a book called The Gulag Archipelago. It's written by a Russian guy. I've practiced saying his name. His name is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He lived in the Soviet Union under Stalin. He lived many years in prison camps, gulags. And in this book, he just details the horror of what it was like to live in Soviet Russia under Stalin and to be a political prisoner in these gulags as they shuffled them around from camp to camp to camp. It's a horrific book. I haven't been able to just plow through it because I I read a little and I need a break. There's been times it's literally kept me up at night. There's been times as I'm reading it, I say, this is why people say that under Stalin, the Soviets perfected the art of torture. It's a horrific book. You understand that they might have perfected the art of torture, but they didn't invent it. You also understand that 2,000 years ago, they weren't talking about Stalin and the Soviets. They were talking about Caesar and the Romans. And there was people who would have made the claim 2,000 years ago, these guys have perfected the art, you might call it the science, of torture. 
of making people suffer. John is not bashful about detailing that in this passage. Look at John 18, verse 38. We looked at this last week. Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? And then after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. Isn't it shocking when you get to our passage, John 19, 1, and it says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. You just said that he was innocent, that there was no guilt in this man, and now you're flogging this man. The Romans had several forms of flogging. They just called all of them flogging at times, but there were particular Latin terms they could also use. Most scholars think that this first flogging is the the fustigatio. I kept reading people this week describing it saying it's a relatively light form of flogging. And I kept thinking, is that a thing? Is there such thing as a light form of flogging? Well, compared to some of the other forms, yes, is a relatively light form of flogging. If you caused a civil disturbance, this is what you would receive, and this is what Jesus receives in this moment. Just a few moments later, when he's officially condemned to be crucified, he probably would have experienced the verberatio, the most severe form of Roman flogging. I probably don't need to describe it to you. I really don't think that's the point of the passage. You've probably heard people talk about it. It was horrific. People were known to die during this most severe form of flogging. The idea was that we want to weaken these guys or gals up so that they don't hang on the cross for days and days and days and we got to pay the soldiers to sit out there and watch them. Let's just make it quick. Let's make it go fast. So the text says that they flogged him I don't think I have to give you details to say this is physical torture. It's physical suffering. And there's psychological suffering, which is nothing to laugh at. Did you read verse 2? Did you pay attention to verse 2? They took a crown of thorns and they placed it on his head. There's physical suffering involved in that, but it's really mockery. What they didn't realize is it's also a callback to the book of Genesis, to the thorns and the thistles that came into the world when the first Adam sinned. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Just file that away. But they're mocking Jesus. Verse 2 says they put a, a purple cloak on him. Verse 3 says that they kneel down in front of him and they say to him, Hail, King of the Jews, And then they strike him with their fists. They punch him. And this goes on. There's a large group of Roman soldiers at Pilate's disposal. Other gospels make it clear this is sort of a a locker room hazing incident in the extreme. It's suffering. Physical suffering. Psychological suffering. And when you read it, you come away with the question, who's to blame for this suffering? Who do we pin the blame on? It's a horrific story. There are precious few details, and we're thankful for that. But who do, we, who do we blame for this suffering? Maybe you say the soldiers. They're certainly responsible for what they did, all of it. Maybe you say Pilate. He gave the order for them 
to flog Jesus, so much so that the text says Pilate had him flogged. He didn't do it personally, but he was responsible for that. Maybe you say, well, okay, the soldiers, Pilate, but what about the Jews who were sort of pushing the whole thing forward? Or maybe you back up and you say, well, what about Judas? He betrayed Jesus to them. And maybe you back up even further and say, well, what about Satan? Because John told us that Satan entered Judas to betray him and got the whole thing moving. There's lots of blame to go around, but if you really want to answer the question, who's to blame for all of this suffering, here's the truest answer. Sinful people like you and me are to blame. And if you can hear it, here's the second part of the full answer. God is responsible for what's going on. That's not just my take. That's the Bible's take in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52 and 53 is the greatest Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. There are some great ones in the Old Testament. Isaiah 52 and 53 is the longest, the clearest, most detailed description of the suffering servant. Look what the text says. In Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, pay attention to what he says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Not just the soldiers, not just Pilate, not just all the actors you could see in real time, There's a whole nother level of suffering taking place. It wasn't just the physical suffering. It wasn't just the psychological suffering. There was a spiritual aspect to this suffering where God, the Father, is punishing his son for our sins. Who's responsible? Well, if you've sinned, you're responsible. If you believe Isaiah, the Father's responsible. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah goes on, and he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And look what he says. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's more going on in this story than what you can see physically with your eyes. It's the sin of people like you and me that's being placed on Jesus. And it's the wrath of the Father that's being poured out on the Son. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is the suffering servant. We don't just mean, man, the Romans, they were bad dudes and they really knew how to make you hurt. We are saying that. But we're also saying that Almighty God poured his wrath out on God the Son as he bore our sins. He's the suffering servant. Secondly, he's the Passover lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb. One of the things, maybe you would say one of the few things that American culture is good at is ruining otherwise perfectly good holidays. We do that all the time. We just ruin every holiday we get our grubby little cultural fingers on. We just celebrated St. Patrick's Day. Do you know who St. Patrick was? He was a slave who then got free 
and then went back into slavery to be a missionary. And if you have any Irish blood in you at all, your people are largely Christian due to the influence of St. Patrick. He's a remarkable man. And we say, let's have a day for St. Patrick. What should we do? Let's wear green and pinch each other and get drunk. I don't know. Sounds more Irish than St. Patrick to me. I don't know. What about Easter? Easter gets taken over in the United States by bunnies and eggs, which is strange because bunnies don't lay eggs. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Some of you, that light bulb's going off for the first time. I never thought about that. Bunnies and eggs. What? I, we ruined it. You think about Thanksgiving. Let's have a day to give thanks. Mostly we're going to watch football. We're going to gorge ourselves. And then we're going to read the paper for the Black Friday sales tomorrow or the Black Thursday sales or whenever the stores open, we're going to go and buy a lot of stuff and spend a lot of money. Thank you. Thank you. Christmas is just completely commercialized and an old fat guy wearing red and he's got a reindeer herd and all the rest. We take all these good holidays and we just ruin them. One holiday Americans have not got our grubby cultural fingers on is the Passover. We haven't ruined that one. You say, well, we don't celebrate it. Well, we don't. There's biblical reason for why we don't celebrate it, you could argue. Maybe you would just say we don't, haven't turned it into something else because it's kind of a horrific holiday. There's a bunch of lambs that get slaughtered and the blood of those animals gets smeared on the front door of your house. What are you going to do with that? Bunnies and eggs? It's horrific. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12, the first Passover. It was the 10th final cataclysmic earth-shaking plague that the Lord God brought on the Egyptian people, on Pharaoh and his nation. It's the death of the firstborn in all the land of Egypt. And if you've read the story closely and carefully, you know that it would have been the death of the Hebrews had not they killed the lambs in the place of the firstborn and smeared the blood on their houses. The Bible says that the Hebrew people at twilight took these lambs, lambs that had lived in the home for some time. They slaughtered them. They took a hyssop branch and they dipped it in the blood and they used that hyssop branch to smear the blood of these lambs on the door of their home, their homes. And the Bible says that that blood was a sign for the Lord and for the people, reminding the Lord and reminding the people that if the lamb died in the place of the firstborn, death would pass over your home. You deserve to die just like the Egyptians But if the Passover lamb died for your home, death would pass over. Listen to me. John has gone to great lengths to make sure that you know Jesus died at the Passover. He died as the true Passover lamb. You can go all the way back to John 13, 1, the beginning of the farewell discourse when Jesus sits down with the disciples the night before he's betrayed and crucified. John 13, 1, John tells us it was the Passover. He wants you to know that. 
You can look at John chapter 19, verse 29. We'll look at this next week. Jesus is being crucified. They offer him a drink. It's a, a sponge dipped in liquid, and they put it on a branch, and they reach it up to give him a drink. And what kind of branch do they use? John says it's a hyssop branch. Why do you need to know that they used a hyssop branch to offer Jesus a drink? It's not because you're naturally interested in types of wood or lumber. It's because John is telling you Jesus died at the Passover. He died as the true Passover lamb. He says it in verse 14. He says it was the day of preparation of the Passover. John has been building up to this from the beginning. John chapter 1, verse 29, we read the words of John the Baptist, who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Years earlier, John the Baptist said, This is the one. This is the Lamb of God who has come to take away sin. And John has pulled that thread all the way through the gospel of John, and he keeps bringing it up here over and over. It was the Passover. Don't forget, it's the day of preparation of the Passover. They used a a hyssop branch to give him a drink. He wants you to know that Jesus is dying. Listen, Jesus is dying so that death will pass over his people. It matters who he was. It matters that he died. He's the suffering servant. He suffered under the wrath of the Father for sinners. He died as the Passover lamb so that death might pass over you. Thirdly, he is the greater Adam. Jesus is the greater Adam. I want you to look at verse 4 and 5. John 19, 4 and 5. Pilate went out again and he said to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. You remember we saw that in 1838. I find no guilt in him. Then he had Jesus flogged, this less severe flogging. And then he says, I'm bringing him out to you so that you will know I find no guilt in him. Verse five, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns wearing the crown of thorns. He's wearing this purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. Behold the man. If you read this in a Greek New Testament, what he said is, idu ha anthropos. Pilate is a Roman, might have spoken it in Latin, and the Latin phrase would be eke homo. Why did he say this? I think this is beyond dispute. Pilate is mocking the Jews. They are absolutely in a tizzy about a carpenter from Nazareth. He keeps calling himself the son of God, keeps making himself equal with the father. They say, look, we have a a law. He's broken this law. They're probably talking about Leviticus 24, 16. He's blasphemed. He's blasphemed the name of God. He ought to be put to death. And Pilate takes him. He knows he's innocent, but he flogs him. Why? So that he can parade Jesus with the crown of thorns and the purple robe and the marks in his body of this, quote, less severe flogging. He can parade them back in front of the Jews and say, look at this. That's the guy you're 
afraid of? Look what we did to him. We're mocking him with a crown of thorns. We're mocking him with a purple robe. We've punched him in the face and struck him with our fists. We have flogged him to show you that he is clearly no threat. Behold the man that you're all so worried about. Last week I told you something about Caiaphas. I told you that Caiaphas was like a broken clock. He's wrong all day long, but twice a day he's right. Same thing is true of Pilate. He has no clue what's going on here. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows the Jews are just jealous. He's right about that. He just, in this moment, doesn't realize how right he is when he looks at Jesus and he says, Behold the man. Look at this man. The reality is Jesus is the man. And I don't mean he's the man like you talk about somebody who's great at sports and you say, oh, that guy's the man. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean he's the Adam, the man. He's the second Adam. He's the greater Adam. And I just want you to think about the parallels and the contrast between the two. The first Man, the first Adam, Bible says, was created in God's image in the garden. He's an image bearer. Bible says that he was given dominion, meaning he was given authority over all the things that God had created. Bible says that he was our representative. His obedience would have been our obedience, but his failure became our failure. His sin became our sin. When he sinned, we sinned. His sin brought death, not just to himself and his wife, but to all that come from his line. His death, the Bible specifically says, brought thorns and thistles into the world. The Bible says that this first Adam, when he sinned, blamed his wife. It's the first Adam. He brings death. John wants you to see that Jesus is the second Adam. He's the greater Adam. You know, the Bible tells you that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Sunday school, we just talked about that in my class this morning, the book of Hebrews. He's the exact imprint of of the divine nature. The Bible says in this passage, verse 10 and 11, and in other places, Matthew 28, that Jesus has all authority, all dominion under heaven and on the earth and under the earth, everywhere. It's all his dominion. It's all his authority. The Bible says that Jesus was our representative. He died as a suffering servant, as a Passover lamb. His death counts as our death. The first Adam blamed his wife for his sin, but Jesus took the blame for our sin. He had no sin of his own for which to die. He wears this image of the curse on his head even as he lays down his life for his people, the thorns. He wears the thorns as a crown. First Adam brings sin and death. Second Adam brings righteousness and life. It matters who this man is. He's not just a carpenter from Galilee, a carpenter from Nazareth. He's the suffering servant who suffered for your sins. He suffered. 
He's the Passover lamb who died so that death could pass over you. He's the second and the greater Adam. Lastly, he's the king of kings. He's the king of kings. This detail keeps popping up in the story. Verse 3, they came up to him and they said, Hail, king of the Jews. Verse 14, Pilate said, Behold your king. Verse 15, Pilate asked, Shall I crucify your king? Verse 19, Pilate wrote an inscription. He put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He's the king, he's the king, he's the king. Even in the midst of trying to manipulate each other, you see something true about Jesus in this passage. And this is the great tragedy of what we're reading in John 19. This is the most crucial moment in all human history, the one that we're reading about right here. The stakes have never been higher. You got a group of Jewish religious leaders and you got Pilate, and they are having a contest to see who can back who into a corner first and who can manipulate the other to do what they want to see done. In a sad, tragic sense, you could say that they both got what they wanted. The Jewish people want Jesus dead. Look what we read in verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law. Again, probably Leviticus 24, 16. According to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. They know, listen to me. They know that Pilate doesn't give two pennies about Leviticus 24, 16. That is not going to convince Pilate to kill Jesus. So they got to push harder. Verse 12, Pilate was seeking to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This is the equivalent of siblings saying, I'm going to tell dad. Like, you just go right to the source. Look, Pilate, let, let us make this clear for you. If you don't kill him, we want him dead. If you don't kill him, we're going to go talk to our friend, Caesar. Friend? The man who has idols set up in the temple precincts, that's their friend? We're going to go talk to our friend, Caesar, and when he finds out about the riot breaking out in Judea, you're going to be out of a job. That's what they're really saying when they say, Pilate, if you make yourself a king, you're no friend of Caesar. Jesus is no friend of Caesar. Don't don't you want to be a friend of Caesar, Pilate? It's almost enough to push him over the edge, but he needs one more shove. And the great irony is that the whole time they're trying to push Pilate over the edge, he's trying to push them back just as hard. He's trying to manip manipulate them with all these statements, you're king, you're king, you're king. They're having a contest to see who can outmaneuver who. And in the end, they both go over the edge Look at verse 15. They say, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And here's the moment where they push Pilate over the edge and he drags them with him. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. What about Yahweh? Where's the Lord in this passage? We have no king 
but Caesar? Where's the men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who would stand up and say, we will not bow down to your idol. Do whatever you want to do to us, but we will not bow down because we only have one king and one God. We refuse. Those people are nowhere to be found in this story. There's just a group of Jewish leaders who say, we have no king but Caesar. They're in a legal courtroom setting and they openly on the record, officially repudiate their relationship with Yahweh as their king. We have no king but Caesar. It might be one of the most frightening, horrific, terrifying sentences in all of the Bible. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate's pushing, the Jews are pushing, they both go off the cliff, and in the middle of the whole contest is a king someone who has all authority and who says to Pilate, look, you don't have any authority over me at all, Pilate. You don't have real authority. The authority you have has been given to you. He's telling Pilate, again, if he only had ears to hear it, Pilate, I am the king. I'm the king of the Jews and I'm the king of the world. Here's the reality. In the end, everyone will acknowledge this truth. Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is the king. The soldiers in this story who mocked Jesus and called him a king and then literally punched him in the face will one day acknowledge that he is the king. Every two-bit politician, including the ones in this story, all the way up to the present day. Every two-bit politician who tries to use God's name or use the name of Jesus for his or her political advancement and then is willing to abandon God for their own political expediency will one day acknowledge he's the king. There's no question about that. Uh, Every expert who has tried to get you to question and doubt the truthfulness of the Bible because they want to deconstruct and destroy your faith will one day acknowledge that Jesus is the king. Every pastor or church leader who has abused his or her authority and hurt vulnerable people will one day acknowledge that they are not the top dog. Jesus is the king. Everyone will acknowledge that. Here's John's desire. John, we talked about this last week, John doesn't want you to just feel bad for Jesus and say, oh, scourging, flogging, it's tough. He's not just writing to make you a, a courageous, bold person and say, well, I would have I stood up and I wouldn't have sided with Caesar. That's not why he's writing. He's writing so that you know the truth about Jesus and you believe. John 20, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. John knows that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is the king of all kings. You can get a glimpse of that in the book of Revelation. When Jesus comes back, it's written on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords. Everyone will acknowledge it. John doesn't want you to acknowledge it for the first time on the last day. He wants you to know it now. He wants you to see God sent the suffering servant. He sent the true Passover 
lamb. He sent a second greater Adam to be your representative. Who did he send? He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the King. Let's pray.